Hello and welcome to the Tudor episode of the History Jar podcast. And yes, it has been a while. And the reason for that is very simple. I've lost track of time, which isn't great for a historian. Anyhow, today we'll be covering Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary Tudor and Elizabeth. Mary, of course, is better known to history as Bloody Mary and Elizabeth would prefer to be known as Good Queen Bess or Gloriana. Clearly, you can see which of the sisters had her eye on posterity. So, in August 1485, Henry Tudor arrived in England. He came along with a French army, his uncle Jasper, and an unpleasant mystery illness called the Sweating Sickness. Its last known occurrence in England was 1551. It disappeared as quickly as it arrived. It was said of the Sweating Sickness that you could be well at breakfast and dead by dinner. You'd be struck by a sense of apprehension, shivers, dizziness, a headache, a pain in the neck and exhaustion before the sweating began. It was a summer sort of killer, well, into early autumn. However, enough of strange diseases that erupt from nowhere with no known cure. We need to go back to John of Gaunt. If you recall, he was married three times. Once for money and title to Blanche of Lancaster, Secondly, for a crown to Constanza of Castile. And finally, for love to his long-term mistress, Catherine Swinford. John and Catherine's eldest son was John Beaufort. There were three more siblings. All of them were legitimised by the papacy, and then by Richard II's Parliament of 1397. The Act of Parliament, signed by Richard II, made the family legitimate in every sense. It was only when Henry of Bolingbroke, John Beaufort's half-brother, usurped the throne that the act was amended by the addition of a single single line, except in the matter of the throne. But Henry didn't take his amendment to Parliament. There was no statute confirming the change. So what this means is that if you are a Lancastrian by sympathy, there is absolutely no legal restraint on Henry Tudor becoming King of England. I mean, his claim was a bit dodgy. Following the Wars of the Roses, there was a shortage of Lancastrians. The Beaufort clan had been decimated by battle and execution. The claim to the throne lay in the hands of Margaret Beaufort, Henry Tudor's mother. On her father's side, her great-grandfather was Edward III. Her own father, the Duke of Somerset, had died in disgrace in 1444. In 1453, she was taken to London, where a marriage that had been arranged with John de la Poole was speedily laid to one side, so that Henry VI could marry off the Lancastrian heiress to his own half-brother, Edmund Tudor. Edmund Tudor and his younger brother Jasper had absolutely no claim to the throne whatsoever. Edmund died of the plague, and Margaret, just 13, bore her husband a posthumous child at Pembroke Castle, Henry Tudor. Henry saw very little of his mother when he was a child, and he spent much of his youth as a political asylum seeker. But by 1483, his mother had begun plotting to topple Richard III, And by 1485, Henry and his uncle Jasper Tudor were back in England. 
His reign officially commenced on the 21st of August 1485, the day before the Battle of Bosworth. What this meant was that anyone fighting on the side of Richard III was guilty of treason and could be attainted by Parliament. In reality, Henry was king by conquest and parliamentary title. This is the reason why the medieval period is seen to come to an end in 1485, because we can start to see very clearly the role of Parliament. Parliament is the means by which Henry Tudor is king. In reality, you'd have to say the medieval period, it could be argued, doesn't actually end until the 17th century in England. Anyway, back to Henry VII. He was king by conquest. He strengthened his claim to the throne by marrying Edward IV's daughter, Elizabeth of York, and by bolstering stories of his own descent from King Arthur of Round Table fame. It's always handy to have a legendary ancestor. Do you not have one of your own? Not that it saved Henry from a reputation for meanness, probably helped on in its way by Cardinal Morton and his fork. Cardinal Morton had been an arch-conspirator on behalf of the Lancastrians before the Battle of Bosworth. Now he took on the role of making Henry secure, and he took to visiting people. If they tried to impress him with their best plate and their best robes, he told them that they could clearly afford to lend the king money and to cough up immediately. A forced loan was exacted. On the other hand, if you wore your fifth best robe, the one that the mice and the, the moths had got at, served a thin gruel on plates that had seen better days, then Morton would congratulate you on being ever so careful with your cash and suggest that you must have a very large strong room full of loot and that therefore you could afford to lend Henry money. So another forced loan was arranged. This diabolical device has become known in history as Morton's Fork and is much delighted over by GCSE students. Morton's Fork should not be confused with a toasting fork. Forced loans and the threat of attainder, i.e. the accusation of treason, was a way of keeping the aristocracy under control. The Tudors were all very so very good at placing distant relations and self-made man in positions of power. The last Battle of the Wars of the Roses was actually in 1487 at the Battle of Stoke. Lambert Simnel claimed he was Edward Plantagenet, the Earl of Warwick, and the son of the Duke of Buckingham, the one who drowned in a vat of Malmsey. Henry knew that this couldn't be true, as he had the real Earl of Warwick locked up in the tower. In reality, Simnel had been set up by John de la Poole, the Earl of Lincoln, who was the mastermind behind the Yorkist plot, demonstrating that they really had run out of Yorkist claimants. Simnel ended up, after the rebellion, as a kitchen scullion and eventually rose to the role of royal falconer. John de la Poole, who was the son of Elizabeth of York, the sister of Edward IV and Richard III, had initially accepted Henry's rule, but then rebelled. He'd been financed by his aunt, Margaret of Burgundy. De La Poole was killed at the Battle of Stoke, we think. Henry, as a consequence of the battle and the rebellion, packed his mother-in-law, Elizabeth Woodville, off to a nunnery. 
and became more vigorous than ever in placing self-made men at the heart of government, rather than those who thought that they might be born to it. In 1491, there was yet another Yorkist rebellion, this time seeking to place Perkin Warbeck on the throne. Perkin claimed to be the Richard of York. If you like conspiracy theories, this is the rebellion for you. He claimed that he was the younger brother, i.e. the younger of the two princes in the tower. Ultimately, however, Perkin ended up in the tower and in 1499 was executed following an escape attempt along with the Earl of Rorick, which wasn't really much of an escape attempt. It was more of a method of getting rid of him to clear a path for Henry's eldest son, Prince Arthur, named after Arthur of Round Table fame, to marry Catherine of Aragon. Henry Tudor, having married yet another of Elizabeth of York, the daughter of Edward IV, had produced the required heir and a spare, but unfortunately the heir, Arthur, died in Ludlow, where he was learning to be king, along with his new bride, Catherine. This was problematical. Arthur had only just married Catherine of Aragon. This marriage had had a twofold effect, in that it welcomed Henry VII into the fold of European monarchs. He wasn't just some chancer who may or may not hang on to the throne. Ferdinand and Isabella had trusted him with their daughter. He'd also come into contact with rather a lot of cash. Catherine's dowry was rather large and Henry didn't want to hand it back. Catherine now found herself in the position of piggy in the middle, as her father, Ferdinand of Aragon, and her father-in-law, Henry Tudor, haggled over her dowry and who she might marry next. Was she going to marry Henry's younger son, also known as Henry? Or was she going to marry Henry himself, i.e. Henry VII? At one point, Catherine became the first female ambassador ever for Spain because her father wanted to save on the cost of employing an ambassador. Not great. But if we're going to look at Henry VII, he established the Yeoman of the Guard, i.e. the beef eaters who wander around the Tower of London today, so he clearly had an eye for tourism. He rebranded the royal family with the united red and white rose, the Tudor rose, and he employed people like Hollinshed to write history the way he wanted it told. So definitely a man with an eye on posterity. He was not a popular monarch. He was outlived by his mother, Margaret Beaufort, who had not only orchestrated her son's accession to the throne, but who found herself orchestrating the peaceful succession of her 17-year-old grandson, Henry, who, until Arthur's death, had been destined for the church. Now there's a prayer that I would have liked to have seen. When Henry died, people were glad to see the back of him. They looked forward to being ruled by the young, tall, handsome Henry VIII, demonstrating that you should be careful what you wish for, not least because his first action was to have his father's tax collectors, Empson and Dudley, arrested and... um, executed. The next thing he did was to rescue the princess in the tower, i.e. Catherine of Aragon, and set about creating the marital pneumonic 
divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So he divorced Catherine of Aragon after 24 years of marriage, beheaded Anne Boleyn when she failed to provide him with a son. Jane Seymour had the common sense to die before she became boring, having presented him with a son. Divorced Anne of Cleves, who he nicknamed the Flanders Mayor, allegedly. He beheaded Catherine Howard, who was stupid enough to actually commit adultery. And Catherine Parr survived him. In addition to marrying his mistresses and executing his wives when they displeased him, Henry was a bit of a hypochondriac. He actually wore a pouch of spiders around his neck to ward off illness. He wrote music, but not green sleeves, despite what everyone thinks, and became the defender of the faith on behalf of the Catholic Church before becoming the head of the Church of England, but keeping the title defender of the faith. Key figures from his reign include Sir Thomas More, who wasn't as nice as people make out, Cardinal Wolsey and Thomas Cromwell, who Henry described as his best servant, but only after he'd had him, um... And, of course, famously, he also had Sir Thomas More. In fact, according to some historians who have tallied up these things, he had more than 70,000 people. Although, to be fair, they weren't all beheaded. He had many of them hanged, drawn and quartered. And, of course, there were a few who burned because they were heretics. So it's always good to keep an even playing field in your executions. Whereas Henry VII had kept a careful eye on his account books, Henry VIII loved spending money and apparently executing people. Henry turned England Protestant in order to marry Anne Boleyn, but he didn't really change what he believed, and the court he ruled over became a balancing act between the Catholic aristocracy who rather unfortunately tended to have Plantagenet blood in their veins, or be the Duke of Norfolk, who was a Howard, and the newer reformers. There was quite often tension between the two groups, and Henry was quite happy to execute them all equally. The reason for all this divorce, beheading, divorce, beheading, etc., was that Henry was desperate for a male heir. He ended up with one son, Edward, by his third wife, Jane Seymour, a Catholic daughter, Mary, by his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and a daughter, Elizabeth, by his wife, Anne Boleyn, although obviously neither Catherine of Aragon nor Anne Boleyn were his wives, if you listened to Henry talk about it. At various times, both Mary and Elizabeth were declared illegitimate. This was ultimately resolved by Henry VIII's will, which sorted out the order in which the children would inherit, and more importantly, this was confirmed by the statute books, which was something that Edward VI advisers would have done well to remember when they tried to put Lady Jane Grey on the throne, in place of her cousin Mary Tudor. Yes, Edward VI's will identified Lady Jane Grey as his successor, putting Catholic Mary and dodgily legitimate Elizabeth to one side, Edward didn't live long enough for the will to go through Parliament, so it was a personal document rather than a legal document. Henry VIII became more obsessed than ever by the end of his life with the prospect of an untroubled succession. The ghosts of the Wars of the Roses seemed to have troubled him somewhat. It was for this reason that the Countess of Salisbury lost her head 
without benefit of a trial on the 27th of May, 1541. Her third son was Cardinal Reginald Pole, and he had written injudiciously even about the king's proposed marriage to Anne Boleyn. Following the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536, which followed on from the start of the dissolution of the monasteries, and Margaret's well-known sympathy for, for Princess Mary, it was perhaps not surprising that she ended up in the Tower. In actual fact, the Countess of Salisbury had been Princess Mary's governess, and she was a very good friend of Catherine of Aragon. She was, of course, also a Plantagenet. The Countess of Salisbury was a pensioner. She was not tried for any crime. She demanded to know what crime she was about to be executed for. She didn't go quietly. And unfortunately for her, her executioner was a young and inexperienced man. Shall we say that it it wasn't a good end? Henry went from being a tall and handsome man to someone who had to be wheeled around, his palaces filled with glasses because of his short sight, and people placing pomanders close to their nose because his leg ulcers could be smelled some way ahead of him. Henry's son, Edward, ruled from January 1547 until his death, aged 15, on the 6th of July, 1553. Edward was definitely a Protestant monarch, whereas Henry, although he pretended to be Protestant, had maintained his religious beliefs throughout his life. Edward's infancy had marked Henry VIII's rough wooing of the Scots in a bid to ensure the marriage of his great-niece, Mary Queen of Scots, to the infant Edward. After Henry's death, a Regency Council was founded. Edward Seymour, Edward's uncle, the first Earl of Hertford, was quick to make political capital from his nephew's elevation to the throne. He became Lord Protector. Henry VIII had made no provision for a Lord Protector, although he had identified a Regency Council. Seymour's main rival was John Dudley, who now became the Earl of Warwick. Dudley was the son of Henry VII's tax collector, the one who Henry VIII had had executed. The other problem for the Earl of Hertford was his brother, Thomas Seymour, who now became Lord Admiral and got himself into a huge amount of trouble by trying to marry Mary, Elizabeth and then Catherine Parr. He asked them all in turn and Catherine, who'd liked him before she had been required to marry Henry VIII, got married to him. Ultimately, the Lord Admiral was executed after the death of his wife in childbirth. The Lord Admiral was rather resentful of the fact that his brother was the Lord Protector. And he fancied his, his own way with the ladies. And when I say ladies, please bear in mind that Elizabeth was a young teenager. He was even accused of wanting to marry Lady Jane Grey, who was even younger. The period also saw the Prayer Book Rebellion in Cornwall, because the Cornwish objected to the imposition of Protestantism. The Second Rebellion was led by Robert Kett and was related to the enclosure of common land. The problem was that the Earl of Hertford had said that he would right the abuses that had marked the end of Henry VIII's reign. Hartford ultimately avoided execution when John Dudley took power, 
But he began a counterplot against Dudley, and at that point, he was also for the chop. (laughs) Meanwhile, Mary and Elizabeth found themselves walking on a very wonky tightrope indeed. Poor Mary hadn't had a happy life, but finally she became queen in July 1553, at which point she did some very silly things. She invited her cousin, Cardinal Reginald Pole, back from Europe, married her cousin, Philip II of Spain, and attempted to reimpose Catholicism, which probably went down quite well with the Cornish. Elsewhere, it all went down like the proverbial lead broom. Ultimately, she had more than 280 people burnt at the stake. It probably wasn't the best PR move in history. It did, after all, result in her being known as Bloody Mary. Her insistence on marrying her cousin, Philip II, resulted in Wyatt's rebellion in Kent. One of the men involved in the rebellion was the Duke of Suffolk. He's the father of Lady Jane Grey. Now, Mary had no choice other than to have her cousin and her young husband, Guilford Dudley, executed. And all that means that we tend to forget that Mary was England's first Queen Regnant, i.e. she ruled in her own right, she wasn't a consort. Under the terms of Queen Mary's Marriage Act, Parliament ensured that Philip would be politely asked to leave England in the event of the Queen dying before him without any heirs. And that brings us in our whirlwind tour of the Tudors to Elizabeth, because Mary, who believed herself to be pregnant, said farewell to her husband, who never returned, and incidentally, when he arrived in England, he did bring his favourite mistress with him. Now, whichever way we look at Elizabeth, she was definitely, really and truly, illegitimate. When Henry married her mother Anne Boleyn, he was still officially married to Catherine of Aragon. She was actually a toddler when her illegitimacy became official. She had been imprisoned in 1554 following Riot's rebellion after a childhood of being alternatively petted and ignored. She was careful to maintain her innocence and she was careful to ensure that she couldn't be entrapped. She grew up to be a pragmatist who boxed people's ears, swore like a trooper and enjoyed a well-turned thigh. She made it quite clear that she was married to her kingdom even though she had a bit of a thing for Robert Dudley, who was a childhood friend. Unfortunately, Robert's wife Amy had a very nasty accident with a staircase, and I don't actually have a special effect for that, and that was the end of that. She learnt from her mistake she didn't appreciate the scandal, so she had a series of favourites throughout her reign, including the Earl of Essex, Robert Devereux, who was Dudley's stepson. Poor old Robert Devereux made the mistake of bursting in on Elizabeth in her old age, in her bedroom, without her wig and makeup. Not something that one does if one wishes to survive. So it's perhaps not surprising that ultimately he ended up rebelling against Elizabeth I and being... This marked a low point for Elizabeth because she'd always prided herself in ruling by the will of the people. And yet, Robert had tried to rouse a rebellion against her. Know you not, she said, that I am Richard II. And that nearly got Shakespeare into a whole lot of trouble as well. 
The other key royal of this period is Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, Mary, Queen of Scots, of course, has Tudor blood in her veins. Um, and she fled Scotland for England, having made a few injudicious marriage choices of her own and spent the better part of 20 years in captivity as the Catholic alternative to Elizabeth's Protestant rule, before she was finally executed in Fotheringay Castle, having been lured into writing a note that permitted conspirators to assassinate Elizabeth. The execution of Mary, and yes, I suppose I really did ought to make sure that it was quite... I think that's the last time I'm using that on this particular podcast... The execution of Mary was the signal for the Spanish Armada, which may have had more to do with English pirates, sorry, privateers, than outrage about the execution of Mary. In the summer of 1588, the Spanish Armada was defeated, and that may have had more to do with the weather than men like Sir Francis Drake. It was the highlight of Elizabeth's reign, giving actresses like Glenda Jackson an opportunity to reprise Elizabeth's Tilbury speech in glorious Technicolor. The rest of Elizabeth's reign wasn't quite so happy. Robert Dudley died. The Earl of Essex proved to be not quite as loyal as she might have hoped. Elizabeth died on the 24th of March 1603. A few hours later, James VI of Scotland, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, was declared James I of England. Aside from the fact he had Tudor blood in his veins, he had an heir and a spare, and most importantly of all, so far as Elizabeth's beleaguered council was concerned, he was a bloke. Now, you're probably wondering what books I'm going to recommend. The Tudors have to be the best-selling history topic in England. So, if you want a really good book, Hilary Mantel's series of books about Thomas Cromwell are a must. Um, if you prefer non-fiction, Tracy Borman's biography of Thomas Cromwell is very good. And I have looked at my bookcase, and virtually every second book is about the Tudors. So here are a few. Um, I've got Nicola Tallis, Elizabeth's Rival, which is about Lettuce Knollis. Um, Lettuce is descended from Mary Boleyn, and she looked remarkably like her cousin Elizabeth. She actually ended up married to Robert Dudley. Lettuce Knollis is Robert Dudley's second wife, and Elizabeth was absolutely livid. In actual fact, Robert Devereux is, of course, Lettuce's son. Um, also by Nicola Tallis is Uncrowned Cream, which is the story of Margaret Beaufort. And finally by Nicola Tallis, I really do like her, um, is Crown of Blood, which is the story of Lady Jane Grey and the tainted Tudor blood that resulted in quite a few executions and long-term imprisonments. Um, Alison Weir writes extensively about the Tudors, um, so she's well worth reading. She's, she's a standard text, I think. If you want something a little bit different... Then Miranda Kaufman's Black Tudors, The Untold Story, is accessibly written um, and it's got loads of detail into it that brings to the fore the fact that in conventional history there are often people whose voices aren't regarded as historically important and yet as the modern world changes, as society changes, voices which were once 
not deemed to be important enough to be written about or recorded are brought to the fore. So Black Tudors by Miranda Kaufman. If you're more curious about um, Henry VII, then Thomas Penn's Winter King was the history book of the year. Um, now, quite a while ago now. Do you know, I can't remember when it was written. But Thomas Penn, the Winter King, is a comprehensive account of Henry VII's life. I suppose one of the things that you'd have to say about the Tudors is that they were aware of their image and the impact that their image made. And I think perhaps that's quite a lot of the information that's contained in, in the various books that you draw out. The image becomes incredibly important by the time of Elizabeth I's reign. And indeed, she oversaw the production of her pictures. And the only picture of Elizabeth that's very unflattering was actually painted after her death, when the Stuarts were trying to look forward into the 17th century, rather than the population who were trying to look back at a golden age of Elizabeth. And that's probably quite a good point to stop at. So in the next episode, I shall be dealing with the Stuarts and the 17th century, which will lead us neatly into the English Civil War. Um, I haven't yet worked out whether I'm going to stop um, midway through the Stuarts and deal with the Civil War separately. But I think since I've whipped through the Tudors so quickly, it'll probably be a one hit for the Stuarts as well. In the meantime, I hope you're enjoying some summer sun and that you're able to get out and about and maybe even enjoy a haircut. Take care, stay safe, bye!